0: Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist Affiliate Deacons, Deacon Drew and Deacon Tom. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Tom. Well, here we are. Welcome again, everybody. It's good to see you. Boy, we got wall-to-wall Deacons today, huh? It looks like the Brady Bunch on the screen, and they're all Deacons. So we we have a very good session today with Deacon Bill Deitwig, who's a Paulist author of a new book called Courageous Humility, where he talks about the future of the church and the synod and all kinds, of de- the diaconate service ministries, all kinds of things. And of course, de- we'll get into who Bill is, but he's a heavy hitter. He's a great guy. And we'll talk about that. But how, first, how are you guys doing? Tom, what's hey, What's yeah, happening with you?
1: Tom? Well, I'm a
0: little busy this couple past days. We had a
1: hurricane come up the west coast of Florida. It did not hit us, but it did land somewhere. And we keep those people north of us in the the big bend of Florida in our prayers that suffered a pretty catastrophic event. So that's taking up my time this week and looking forward to working on some homilies and Reengaging with the parish now that I'm back in Florida.
0: Mm,
1: excellent. Very good. But you're safe. But
0: Drew, you're safe right What's Tom? cooking with you?
2: Hi. Oh, well, this is Drew. I wanted to mention this, this thing that happened with me last week in my parish. In the old days, uh, maybe a year ago, I used to preach on a fairly regular basis, but we got a new pastor in and he changed the way that we do things. And so I preach once a month, which is absolutely fine with me. And I preach at all of our masses, which is four. There's one in Saturday evening, and then there's three beginning 8 o'clock Sunday morning. And it's taught me new things about your weekend liturgy, which I never had to deal with before. And that is, first of all, when you're giving a homily four times, you've got Usually the same people there, like the same musicians there. So they hear it four times. And by the fourth time they've heard it, you could just see them nodding. Okay, okay, let's get to the end. And that's always fun. But what I wanted to mention to you guys, I thought you might find this somewhat interesting. This weekend, I started uh, my homily with the story that I told the people, the parishioners, was a true story. In fact, it was not a true story. It's a complete fabrication. It's a joke. <laughs> and, and it's kind of a well-known joke, I thought. But it turns out no one in my parish has ever heard this joke. <laughs> Lying and in the church. Way to go. <laughs> and, <laughs> what I'm going to do is t- and I'm going to give you the very short version of the joke because it, I took about four minutes to tell this joke, well, about three minutes to tell this joke. And it has to do with Pope John Paul II landing in newark to come up to giant stadium to preach and how he always heard about the new jersey roads he wanted to drive so he told and they had a big stretch limo waiting for him and he told the the limo people i'm driving and while all of his people argued with him he's the pope and he gets what he wants so he gets in the car and he takes off down the new jersey turnpike in this huge stretch limo with all tinted windows nobody can see who's in it and he is going up the new jersey Turnpike. And he's going about 90 miles an hour because it's Pope John Paul II. He's a downhill skier. He's very athletic. He likes speed. And he likes the feel of the road. And he's weaving in and out of traffic because it is the New Jersey Turnpike and it's crowded. The state police give chase. They chase him. They radio ahead. you got to stop this guy. I don't know who he is, but uh, he's driving very recklessly and very fast, and we got to get him. They pull him over at the exit to get off to Giant Stadium. The state trooper approaches the car, knocks on the driver's window. The Pope rolls down the window and smiles at him in the the way that John Paul II could do. And the trooper says, just a minute, sir, walks back to the car and says, I can't arrest this guy or give him a ticket. And they were livid back at the station. They're like, we have five cars surrounding him. Why can't you do something about this? Well, he seems to be extremely important. I don't know. It could be Jesus. The Pope is driving okay punchline here's the issue with that story now the first time I told it I told the people later in the mass at the announcements that was by the way not a true story that was a joke (laughs) and there was surprise all around and one of the ushers said to me I was actually in the back googling this story and I said you're not going to come up with it that was the first mass the second mass I forgot to tell him it was a joke And they actually got into an argument with me today, some parishioners afterwards. But I remember this. I was here. I went to that mass. I remember. And I'm like, you don't remember this. (laughs) This did not happen. So then the third time I told it, again, I assured them I didn't even start off with this is a true story. And I told them at the end that was not a true story. And and it seemed to be okay. And then the fourth time, (laughs) the fourth time was my favorite because that's when the cantor, my singer, who knows me very well, when I told the joke, you could hear him go, "Ah, <laughs> the punchline." <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> so it was just—it was a lot of fun, but it really helps uh, one to understand who's listening, who's not, and what they're thinking about
0: while you're talking. Right, and what? It's and also a memory check back of the church instead of listening <laughs> yeah. to what you're saying. <laughs> really? you know what I mean? Exactly. So, this is Rodney Dangerfield stuff. I get them respect. Let's not go into that. That's one of the people said that they, one of the people,
2: one of our musicians said they found it very interesting to watch me develop my style as every mass, as we had in every mass was different. And I would uh, do it slightly differently. So
0: Yeah, that's true. You never do it the same way. If you do four in a row or whatever, it's like, it really goes. Same thing for the homily. I mean, the homily was essentially the same, but I
2: emphasize something a little different every time. Sure. Got to break it up, at least for me. Okay. So, Mark, what,
0: what about you? What's going on with you, Yeah, Mark? Deacon Mark, we've upped the the intelligence here of the group because we have a heavy hitter to interview today. Uh, so we got <laughs> our man in Havana here, Deacon Mark. How's it going, Mark? Hey,
3: it's good to be back with you guys. Hey, welcome, good Mark. Good to see you. Hey, so our guest today, Deacon Bill Dightwig, I just want to mention a little bit about him. I think we mentioned he's a Paulist Press author. <laughs> I'll throw that in again. But I had a connection with him when I was in diaconal formation. Just before ordination, he taught us a class. It was called an integrative seminar, and it was filled with these case studies. And the case studies all had to do with difficult or embarrassing scenarios that you might encounter as a deacon. If you weren't already nervous enough about being a deacon, all of these things would help you, presumably prepare for, for the worst. And I'll just mention one of these scenarios that he brought up. So imagine that you are a deacon at Mass, and at the end of Mass, the right after communion, the priest leans over to you and says, you can give blessings, right? And you go, well, (laughs) I guess I can give blessings. He said, good. I'm going to go play the organ for the recessional, and you just do the prayer after communion and the final blessing. And then he runs off, and you're left on the altar by yourself. What do you do? Now, my Mm. answer, I was trying to find my answer in my notes, and I think it was just panic (laughs) and run after him, but... Those were the kinds of scenarios we were faced with, often involving having to look up a relevant aspect of canon law. But in that particular case, I think we were just <laughs> left to our best devices. Anyway, no answer. there was no answer that, for that. I, I, maybe I wasn't that good a student, Dennis. I, I don't remember what the right answer was. Casey <laughs> and I would have done it. We wouldn't even thought <laughs> that's about
1: right. It. Open up the, the missile, read there the final go. prayer. Yeah. yeah. Give a blessing. <laughs> Go oh, in peace,
0: baby. This is I, not you know, a hard one. I thought it was going to be a hard one. Yeah,
1: really? Me, well,
3: Shrew, you know, we're not say? supposed to do the final blessing, but anyway. Well, well, make it, well,
2: make it hard. Right when he begins the consecration, he's, he turns to <laughs> you and hands you the host and says, I'm out of here. You did. <laughs> yeah,
3: now that's a, that's a
0: case study. <laughs>
3: no, there you go.
0: <laughs> Although I did have a conversation with a priest once. He really annoyed me. And he says, he just leans over to me at the last minute. He says, you just sit here. Don't worry. I'll, I'll I'll read the gospel. And I said, <laughs> yeah, okay, Father. I'll confect the Eucharist. (laughs) And he looks at me like, Are you crazy? And it's like, like, even the Pope, when you see the Pope doing Christmas Mass, he has a deacon. That's the deacon's job. I'm up here. I'm dressed for the occasion.
3: Yeah. You're not a potted plant, right? Yeah. You get the stories of the wrong readings being read, right, when you've prepared a holiday. Or the priest leaning over to you just before, or, yeah, just before the gospel and saying, when you hadn't prepared the homily, you're doing the homily today, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, the, yeah. Those kinds of things that you wake up in in, <laughs> in the middle of the night thinking could happen to you. Yeah. Anyway, hey, Dennis, congratulations. 30 years. yeah. Yes. Happy anniversary. 30 years.
0: 30 years. Thank you. Thank you very what, much. The, what Better kind good. of
3: watch did you get?
0: I got nothing. <laughs> I got congratulations <laughs> from Mark. Well, and family, priceless. my family had a little surprise party for me here at the clam shack on the lake so it was a very sweet very nice and that yeah it's been a great it's the second best decision i ever made being a deacon after marrying my wife i mean it's just it's Uh. a life-changing thing it's a great ride even the horror stories mark we were just talking about drew i mean it's like yeah well worth it highly recommend it so anyway, with, that's enough of us. Let's get to the interview with Deacon Bill Deitwig.
3: It's a pleasure for us to welcome our guest today, Deacon Bill Deitwig. Bill Deitwig served in the U.S. Navy for 22 years, retired as a Navy commander in 1993. While still in the Navy, he was ordained a deacon by the Archdiocese of Washington and has served in various church-related positions, including as a diocesan official, a Catholic high school associate principal, and in the first decade of the 2000s, he was the executive director of the Secretariat for the Diaconate for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Deacon Bill holds several degrees, including a PhD in theology from the Catholic University of America and has taught as a university professor. He is well-published and is especially known as one of America's, if not America's, leading expert on the diaconate. He's been married for 50 years, I believe, and has four children and 14 grandchildren, and has recently published a book with Paulus Press, Courageous Humility, Reflections on the Church, Diaconia, and Deacons. Welcome to our podcast, Deacon Bill. Thank you so much, Mark. You're an expert on the diaconate and have given us really an insightful understanding of the contemporary diaconate and in your many books, and also some very incisive and hopeful ways of how the diaconate might continue to take shape in the decades ahead. But we'd like to start our conversation with you today by opening the aperture and talk about the broader trends and movements in the Church. We'll get to your particular topic of your book, Courageous Humility, in a moment, but I was struck in your preface when you said, the days of going my way and the bells of St. Mary are long gone, and they're not coming back. I think there are a number of people, however, who wish we were going back to those days. The church, as you point out, is a relationship, and if it were a relationship whose status was posted on Facebook, I think it would be It's complicated. Can you describe (laughs) what you think of the state of the church today and where we seem to be headed?
4: Wow. Let me ponder that for a moment. The the source of that quote, that use I made of Bing Crosby movies, actually came about at at a chrism mass that I was a participant in some years ago. And a very wise, now retired bishop made that point to his priests and to us as deacons, but he was particularly focused on his priests. And he said, fathers, he said, now that you are a priest and you remember the great parish that you grew up in, he said, now you're a pastor. He said, but you can't treat your pastoring like the pastor of your youth did. We are a different church. The stream has moved on. And and we have to find our own creative ways of pastoral, of caring for our people, and they won't always be the same as what we experienced prior. And and that has stuck with me because I thought the wisdom of that was so profound. Where we are today, I, the thing that concerns me the most uh, is the extraordinary polarization that we face. And I leave it to others to to figure out why that is. But somehow we've allowed especially in the United States, our politics to, to influence our theology about church, about the same kind of polarization that exists in the secular world has now crept into the church. You mentioned earlier my blog. I wrote an open letter to Pope Francis. I think it was a couple of years ago, because everybody seemed to be writing open letters to him. And I thought, well, okay, I'll write one. Writing a letter to Pope Francis in support of his ministry garnered the most negative comments I have ever received in any media. I was joking with a friend who most of you guys know that I, I mentioned to Greg. I said, "Film with 11, Catholic deacon speaks in support of the Pope. It truly was stunning to me that I, all of this negative feedback to a letter that was positive about the Holy Father. So I, we've somehow got to find a way deacons sometimes get referred to, and it's a problematic term sometimes, but we get referred to a lot of times as a bridge. And I think, yeah, we got to find a bridge here that allows us to talk about church. And when we need to be critical, we're critical. But when we need to be accepting and humble and say, how do we move forward together uh, without demonizing the other? And I think that's going to continue to influence our our reality as church, especially here in the States, until we can figure out some sort of approach to that, some sort of solution.
0: It's not just the church problem either. I mean,
4: That's just hard. to throw that in,
0: by the way, we're this is our society we're talking about. It would be really odd if we didn't have that polarization. And with our Protestant friends, we can see they're, they have denominations that are actively right now being torn in two.
4: Absolutely. One of my best friends from Navy days uh, is mm-hmm. very active in the Methodist church. And, and our conversations usually revolve around how the Methodist church is splitting now and, and how that's working. So anyway, I don't need to be a downer of this because actually I'm very positive about the church and moving into the future. But uh, certainly that polarized reality is something I we've really got to come to grips with. And I'm not quite sure how best to proceed with that. You step into the anvil and give a homily. You have to watch every word you say so that it can't be misinterpreted by somebody.
2: What I like about the uh, the way you address this problem, though, Deacon Bill, was you said leave it to the others to to figure out how we got here. And I think one of the problems is we continually get bogged into how we got here. And if we can just talk about hope, which I think you're going to talk about with us right now. I see Mark nodding his head then maybe we can get through this but i i love the way you you want to look at the future and not at the past thank you
3: yeah you mentioned it was a a reflection of our larger societal issues that we're currently in a place where our society at large especially our political sphere is especially polarized And that, unfortunately, is carried over into the church. You use the word or the expression of traveling together, and and you talk about being a pilgrim church, right? Vatican II talks about being a pilgrim church. We're not the perfect societus of the past, if we ever were. But now it's hard to travel together as pilgrims if we're not able to even stand the fact that we might have a little bit of diversity among us in our ideas.
4: It was interesting, as some people might know. I recently went through some serious maxer about a year or so. And what was interesting was that as I came back into active ministry, able to suit up and, and assist at Mass and that kind of thing, even though much slower than normal. I had a lady come up to me before mass one day, and she said, Deacon, it's so good to have you back. And she said, and how's your health? And I I told her it was getting better and much better. Thank you. Thank you for the prayers. And she said, well, even though I know you and I disagree vehemently on on politics, we can still be together in our concern over you. And I thought, yes, okay. I'm sorry I hurt my back, but at the same time, she was on to something. And I didn't know we were at odds politically. I I didn't know that was a thing. But it was certainly from her point of view. She sensed that I talk about social justice and things like this. And obviously. Oh,
0: bad. Very bad.
4: I I know. (laughs) Doctrine. Uh, Social doctrine. Oh, but the idea that she felt that the the major concern was how do we come together as human beings and care for one? That much brought us together. There was a point of commonality. And I was really struck by that. Isn't that some of the
1: issues we're dealing with? though, Deacon Bill, when you're looking at the remedy, we've got the text in front of us. Love one another. The Acts of the Apostles. The question that amazes me is, how do we sit in church every Sunday and hold and harbor these divisive feelings and sentiments and and then act on them in ways that uh, have become this polarization? It's not like we don't have the formula here. That the teachings and the understanding, and that's fine. That's a beautiful thing to disagree with someone uh, on one area, but not to lose the dignity of the person that is so critical to our respect for one another and and formulating how we interact in in a society now that has even alienated us, the the whole church body, the whole people of God type things. It's amazing to me.
3: It is. Drew brought up hope and you did as well. Bill, where do you see the hope then in this time of of polarization?
4: Well, I I think I start with a lot of folks who are interested in how we got to where we are in in a broader sense, not just with the polarization, but as a church. And that's been one of my interests academically and pastorally over the years. Anybody who struggled through one of my classes knows that I I revolve a lot of this stuff around Vatican II and the event of Vatican II, the content of Vatican II. These were the world's bishops coming together. This wasn't just some United States kind of sense of reform. This was 2,600 bishops coming together from around the world, different backgrounds, different cultures. And the thing of it is, and I was just reminded of this today, St. John's 23rd's opening address. He refers early on in his talk to the prophets of gloom that he has to listen to every day, who act as if the church had learned, if everything had been perfect in the life of the church at prior councils. And he says that's not the case. There's always been this kind of struggle. And so, again, we hear voices of doom and gloom right now over the Senate and all the rest of it. But what happens is when those bishops came together, They didn't all agree with each other. At the same time, they learned a lot about how to dialogue. And there were ways that was facilitated by Pope John uh, when he set up, they were called coffee bars at the council. And after the formal sessions, the bishops would go meet with the observers and the theological experts over coffee and talk about what was going on. There was communication. So I see that. The struggle that happened at the around the council is similar to some of what's going on right now, but the proof will be in the actual conduct of the Senate itself, just as it was with the council. And there will be insights, there will be things that come up that right now nobody can even predict. So I, I guess my first part of my answer would be, I find hope in our history there's nothing in our history that says councils and this kind of governance were easy things to accomplish and everything was in full agreement no that's what we dialogue about that's how we work through these issues and this is not new no like the church uh, so that's item number 1 item number 2 is i think as people focus on the reality of life within their own families within their own parish communities all of a sudden th- Different issues take on a human face. Just like that lady who came up to me and said, we may disagree over politics, but I'm concerned about you and your... I am hopeful about that basic human response that maybe we
3: can move beyond. Do, do you think if we could really focus on the actions of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? But I'm, but there is, a. I think you pointed out, I think you had quoted Father Dan Horan on this, saying that there's a Holy Spirit atheism. Yeah,
4: especially in the Latin church. The Eastern churches, no, they, they got it. And I think that's what Dan was getting to. But in the West, yeah, we talk about Jesus Christ and we talk about the Father. And every once in a while, we'll put on red vestments and talk about the Spirit. It's almost like Dan it's kind of an afterthought, because we haven't quite figured out how to image was it a dove? Is it a flame of fire? Yeah. What, what is the Holy Spirit? And I think we need to recover that. I, and again, that's why I start my book with a reflection on the nature of the Trinity itself. We are called to be courageously humble because that's what our God, that's how our God is. So yeah, we, we, we need to do more about the Holy Spirit and, and trust in the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit knows what's going on.
0: Bill, isn't there an altar call? to kind of thing involved in this polarization as tom said we we know what we're supposed to do and there are arguments and merits of different positions and all that but whether it's the progressive side or the conservative side it just strikes me that a lot of people have not really made a decision that jesus is lord it's uh, some politician on the left or the right, and I have my ideology, and that's what this is really based on. You're talking about humility in this book. Humility. This is war. We can't have just a a conversation that agree to disagree, and there's very few people in our political life in the United States that can do that, that don't we have to really, part of this is before we can even look to implement the Acts of the Apostles or the Gospels, don't we have to sit down with ourselves and say, "Who am I following here?" At the end of the day, who's got the last word in my ear?"
4: That's beautifully put. And, and again, talking about humility as grounded in the Trinity and just taking it at the, at the look of the person and ministry of Christ. And we just had these readings so where who do people say that I am? Who yeah. do you say that I am? And when we look at what Jesus did, he says, don't tell anybody about this. Don't don't tell people this. Why? Because they weren't ready to hear it. He was the Savior, the anointed one who first had to go to the cross. And people didn't understand kenosis, that total self-emptying of Christ. They'll listen to what he says. They'll listen to his parables. They'll be amazed by his miracles. But ultimately, what did Christ do? Christ so poured himself out for us. And it led to the death on the cross and then resurrection. And I think sometimes we don't appreciate the radicality of what Christ did and what Christ was calling us to. And again, I've I've written about this before at the Last Supper, at the foot washing. The Greek word that Jesus uses when he says, do you all know what I've done for you? And of course, they don't because the apostles rarely get it. And so he says, let me tell you what I've done. I've given you a model to follow. And the Greek word that's used there for a model to follow is hypodaic. And that Greek word means a model of how to die. That's what to the model. By pouring out this water on your feet and washing your feet, I'm showing you that I am literally pouring my life out completely for you. And if you want to have fellowship with me, You've got to be prepared to do the same thing. It's not just about washing dirty feet. It's about what what that act signifies. This is how I'm going to pour out my life following Christ.
3: You mentioned this a couple of times in the book, the words that the deacon says when we add the water to the wine in the preparation of the gifts. I'll, I'll go ahead and say them. By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. It's unfortunate in a way that those words aren't articulated so that everyone can hear them because it's a reminder of that humility that you're talking about.
4: I agree. I, and I think I'd put this in the book. I know I've certainly said it enough. It says we're supposed to say that in a low voice and I I I'd want to shout it. I, so, because to me, it's one of the most significant theological statements and prayers that we articulate. And it's just so powerful.
0: I articulate it to the altar servers. (laughs) They're standing there giving you the cruets and stuff. I look at them and make eye contact with the kids and like say it in a way that's like, this is important. Everybody else can't hear this, but at least we can hear it. I'm going to share, I'm going to share something that I've, I've,
2: I don't think I've ever shared with anyone else except for maybe one or two people. We have a microphone right in the middle of our altar. It's under comes under the cloth and it comes over. And I'm tall. You can't tell this from a podcast, but I'm tall. And I often, almost always, bend over just a little bit. And even though I'm saying it low, I'm hoping and I know for some that it's been picked up by the microphone.
4: (laughs) So I cheat a little bit, but not a lot. I say it low. It's True. I was just about to make the same confession. I tend to use the lavalier, and if the music has ended, I'll, sometimes I forget, flip the mic on too soon, and I'm saying it in a low voice. But Yeah, but everybody can hear it. <laughs> no, but it also, I, I've preached about this a number of times. I've used it as the subject of, of Muhammad, yeah. just to point that out to people. You won't hear it in a few minutes, but you're going to see this. But these
0: are the kind of things, Bill, that back to the issue you were talking about, the polarization and all that, that if you don't, if Jesus is not clearly Lord in your mind, and number two, if you don't understand that God is calling the shots, not my party or your party, and at the end of the day, his will is going to be done, and you can't relax into that because Like the secular people, you think this is all on my shoulders. I gotta make this happen. This is war. So there's no forgiveness, there's no humility, there's no grace. And then the third thing that we talked about that this is ultimately from God to us who imitate God, hopefully to some extent, try to, supposed to, this is all canonic. You're you're not supposed to be winning. You're supposed to be giving away the store here. So if those principles aren't clear in the mind of the average bear, and they're not, we've got a Pat, Field and McCoy this thing.
4: And, and there's something else, too. But, and I don't—I'm a theologian, and I'm not a canon one, but I've spent enough time with canon law over the years. And one thing that I'm trying to point out to folks is there's all the canons that we're familiar with about clergy and politics. And on the top of my head, I don't remember the numbers. But, you know, this whole thing about if you're part of the clergy, you're not supposed to uh, to endorse a particular candidate or a particular political party. Uh, We preach principles. But even more important than those canons is a canon that introduces those. And the first obligation of cleric is to build up communion. I think there's an expression like the tranquility of communion or something like that. Our first behaviors as clergy with regard to some of these issues is to be to build up the community and not to get back into this division that we've been talking about. So we actually have a canonical requirement to be doing that. And unfortunately, I think we've probably all heard of brother clergy who have been stoking the fire. Or that goes against that initial introductory canon that says our main task is to build up the community the communion
0: right and we can see that's exactly what's destroyed the churches of our evangelical friends right there that's the, one of the major things of people who are no longer evangelicals is i'm not coming here for a political rally mm-hmm. and i don't know what how you win at that i don't know what what's going on to do with jesus but like what are we doing with that, but we can't learn from other people's mistakes apparently either.
3: At the emphasis on the Eucharist lately, about centering ourselves in the Eucharist, what is the Eucharist but the body of Christ? So, if the body of Christ is central to our lives, we should be building up the body of Christ. That is what we're about.
4: And the body of Christ is us. That, thats the whole. That's it in a nutshell. And Saint Augustine said, "We become what we eat." And if Christ himself out, then we can't hold anything back.
0: But again, I don't think the average person has any idea of that. And I know when I've talked about that, they're absolutely shocked. The whole Augustine thing, and this is you on the altar. This is receive who you are. Be who you receive, as Augustine said, when he was giving out communion. People are like, what?
4: Going back to to the, the business of adding a little bit of water to the wine. Just the significance of that. Why do we add that? What's that water? Water is us. And that water is going to be absorbed in that wine. And a few minutes later, through the consecration, it's going to become transformed. And that water that's in that wine repre- starts out as representing us, the, the people around the sacrifice. So, yeah, it's it's a profound I and mean, Somehow we have to find ways of doing a better job of communicating of someone.
3: But so countercultural, right? Humility is, let's face it, not really an American value. We're all about competition and one-upsmanship. So embracing well, I, I humility. Know. I don't know about that.
2: I don't know about that, Mark. I'm very proud of my humility. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, I knew writing a book entitling it Courageous Humility, was going to be rather countercultural. But, but with the point, somehow to be able to stand in humility and say, I don't have all. I don't. And the Holy Spirit speaking to you as much as to me. And what's the Holy Spirit saying to you about I love Acts of the Apostles, where it recounts the so-called Council of Jews. I love the way it ends. Because the letter that they write, remember how it starts?
0: Mm-hmm.
4: It's pleased the Holy Spirit and us to not impose greater. And it goes on with the letter. But the beginning of it has pleased the Holy Spirit and us. Not, it has pleased us under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. No, it's pleased the Holy Spirit and us. And I think there's a humility that, that what they were seeking was the the will, the attitude, the input of the Holy Spirit. And all they were doing was recording well, tell us
0: why you picked, of all the virtues, you're talking about a book about the church, service, diaconia, and actually deacons, and we don't own diaconia. that's everybody who's baptized supposed to serve in some way or another. You picked courage, which I think most people can probably figure why you would pick that, and then you picked humility. Of all the virtues, you didn't pick zeal, you didn't pick, I mean, so tell us about that. That's a big emphasis. You give a lot of space to it. It's very well done. Why would you pick humility?
4: I picked humility for a couple of reasons. One is, the image that kept coming back to me as I was composing this was the notion of how do we as church face the world? And how does the world see us, perceive us? And I think if you went to the average person, non-Catholic, non-religious person, and said, tell me what you think. Of the Catholic Church. And I think a lot of the descriptions that we get would be based on morality or certain positions on certain issues that somehow the first reactions would not necessarily be Catholic charities or Catholic relief or the social justice ministries. And they would be much more institutionally focused. And I thought, well, is that fair? I don't know about you guys. I have folks in my own family who have either never been a part of the church or who have walked away from the church. And we asked, why is that? It's because, well, the institutional church failed me or whatever. caused me great pain and suffering. And I thought, well, how should the church present herself to to others? Not as the answer machine, not as the be-all, end-all. But this is the way Gaudium Spencer, spent, that the joys and the hopes and the fears and, and all of that is part of life. And we reflect that as well. And I thought being a horrible church, and I started doing some research, that humility is really given as the most important virtue by many of our ancient writers, like Augusta. I cite Augustine, Benedict of Nursia, devotes a whole chapter. And so I do, too. Uh, but he devotes a whole chapter of the rule on humility. That's the virtue he picked. And, and what's interesting, I thought, about Benedict's rule is that he's writing of the rule for how to live in community. He's not just writing a rule to say, this is my personal spirituality. He's writing the rule to say, this is how we live together. And I thought, well, if that works for a monastery, it sure has actually worked for a parish or for, a, for the larger church. And then I, I came across, rather late in the planning stages of this, the famous Augustine quote, where he was approached by a former student, who got a letter from him, and basically said, what's the greatest virtue? And it's a beautiful quote from Augustine that he says, I would answer, first, humility, second, humility, third, humility. And he uses the image, he said, if we don't have humility ahead of us, how will we know where to go if we don't have humility on either side of us, what will we lean on and if we don't have humility behind us, who will catch us when we fall? It's a beautiful reflection on, the Lord. and I thought, yeah, this is where I would hope our church will go
0: right and and any this is true of anything I've ever read in spirituality, like historically throughout the two thousand year tradition, the spiritual tradition it's the two things that are emphasized most above everything, although there's a lot of variety, but everybody, I don't care who you are, it's humility and faith. And you go, well, yeah, I got to give you faith. Yeah, of course, that's the business we're in. But they all emphasize humility. And I think, and one of our problems, it's just my two cents, I think that humility has something to do with the ability to take input and the ability to say, well, maybe I'm not right. And the ability to listen to someone else. And that's what we're all lacking. It's I'm right and you're wrong. And I'm not. And whether it's my uh, left leaning friends or my right leaning friends, I realize that one of the things they have in common is no, my mind's made up on whatever it is. A complete lack of humility. Nope, not taking any input, but thank you. And I and, think
4: that's one of the basic teachings about what we believe as Catholics about conscience. And the notion of conscience is that conscience is always an ongoing process. Once I've made my mind up about X, Y, or Z, that's not a static thing. It's not closed off, because somewhere tomorrow I might encounter a different insight or, and that formation of conscience is ongoing. The other thing that I, I would hope with this book is that the notion of humility leads us to action. And that's why, for example, I, I think Chapter Three of the book tries to talk about principles for institutional reform. How can we be a humble parish? How, how, what institutionally do we need to do to ensure that? Because I think that's the bottom line. Is and especially for us as deacons, we're supposed to be the ones that offer concrete consequences. For who we're about as Christians. We're the ones who are supposed to come up with the concrete ideas. And, and so I think that's part of that. Why do we need to adjust and adapt in our, in our things? Recent changes in canon law with regards to annulments, for instance, we used to ask people to make donations, and now there's no donations involved with in that. And that's a practical consequence. Of someone taking a look at the institution and saying, Yes, we can do that. This isn't scripture, this isn't fully writ This has been passed down to God. This is, we can adjust our human institutions.
3: And Pope Francis has been a model of trying to institute that hu- sense of humility in our church, right? Mm-hmm. He's maybe dragging some of the church with him in, in the process of doing so. But as a personal example, he's demonstrated that in the way he lives. And his emphasis on dialogue, and uh, you brought up this synodal process, that listening to the Holy Spirit in not just the institutional church or the magisterium in particular, but in the lives of all of us as members of the body of Christ. Is I, I one of the things I was struck in your discussion of it I think you were quoting Richard Gallardet's about half of the world's bishops something about half of the bishops that are ordained to a titular see meaning that they are assigned to a diocese that no longer exists uh, Isn't that crazy? <laughs> In terms of being a pastoral church it seems that wouldn't be the, mm. the kind of rational no, The rationale, like, be,
4: the rationale right? behind that is interesting. But it does come across as pretty strange. The idea is that we don't exist in isolation, that we don't we don't just exist as a minister without a brief, so to speak. But that was an attempt to keep everybody connected to a community, even if it was a historic community that no longer exists. The other part of, about Episcopal theology is, what is the theology of an auxiliary bishop? You know, is he bound to the diocese in the same way that the diocesan bishop? And actually, not to get too far afield here, as we look at unfinished business from Vatican II, not only do we need to continue developing theology around the diaconate, we need much more of a theology of the episcopate as well. And just there hasn't been a whole lot of of work in those
3: regards. And so that would be an interesting thing in the future as well. Yeah. So you talked about action, and that was the focus of your chapter three. Can you talk about that a little bit? Out of this humility, and as you point out for clerics, the emphasis on growing the body of Christ, the community of believers, what is that activity that all of us as Christians ought to be engaged in? Okay.
4: Yeah. First of all, we had the earlier conversation about Episcopal theology. <laughs> By that, I'm a theology of the bishop. And uh, of course, is the Greek word from which we later develop the word bishops, Not anything to do with bishops. Practical things. As part of a pastoral review of ministry in a parish, for example, how do we handle things like new parishioners coming? What do we do to welcome? Them? How do we deal with that? Or if somebody calls up and says, I think I'd like to get involved in RCIA, what do we teach our, the folks who answer the phone? oh, that sister's part, don't don't worry. (laughs) How do we receive those new members? How do we deal with with folks on a practical basis? When I was in the Navy, we showed up in a new parish, and I mentioned to the pastor that I was interested in pursuing, at least investigating, the possibility of diaconate. And he said, oh, absolutely not. And he he was adamant about it. And I had just met him five minutes before. And I said, well, Father, why are you so against it? I said, I'm interested in finding out more about it. He said, no. He said, that'll never happen out of this parish. And I said, can I ask why? And he said, well, he said, I'd have to know you at least five years before I would make a recommendation to have you become and go into the formation program. And I'm not convinced it's a good idea. But he offered no rationale for that. It was just, boom. Mm-hmm. So I think Those kind of things. How are we lived? What's our lived experience? And what if we were the stranger? What if we were the outside coming in? I think that's where some of this was coming from when I turned to uh, Archbishop Quinn's work. How do we address that? If we were the other, if we were the outside?
0: Well, you're assuming I care. This is not to rain on the parade here. A lot of this stuff, I agree with it. I love it. I think, yes, let's do it. But the, the what you always run up against is, I'm in maintenance mode. I'm not mission. First of all, everybody is not convinced. Despite, I wish I could remember Frank DeCiano, Father Frank DeCiano's thing. He's got this little rap he does of like I'd have to do the math on how many years, but it was Vatican II, and it's like you know 50 years, four encyclicals, three. You know, it goes this whole thing about women hammering evangelization, and the first point is most people who are driving this bus, do not believe their mission is evangelization. Not in any real sense. And part of that is they are not trained to believe that. That's a fact. You just got to look at a seminary curriculum. There's not a heavy emphasis on evangelization and what it is and, and all that. So, and then we've got, you know, the practical stuff of we're combining parishes, and you got older priests, and they're sick, and they're tired, and It's like, here, have another parish, Father, and now go out and and welcome these people. And they're just trying to get through the day. And we're allowing this to happen when I say we are the bishops, really. thats
4: Exactly what you're saying, Dennis, but look where we might jump in here, both feet, and make ourselves a pain. Yeah, old father, here's the mission, but what's keeping the laity and the deacons from taking the steps? Sit back and relax, Father. We got this. There's no No, reason.
0: I got to have control, Bill. I got to have control. I can't, you know, some places they will. I mean, it's a mixed bag. I don't want to make it sound like it's all doom and gloom. But there's a lot of this is like, the main thing is no one make a mistake. I don't want to call. I don't want any problems. So if I say no, no is always the right answer. Because no one's getting yanked out of the parish because they say, well, gee, Father, you don't let your deacon preach. You're not reaching out to people. You don't. That never happens. So, we have some real structural, which is one of the things I liked in your book. We have some real structural stuff. And I think a lot of it falls, quite frankly, at the bishop's door because the bishops, in many cases, don't know their deacons. We're not their guys. You got to back them up and say, listen, I sent this guy here, just like I sent you, and I want X, Y, and Z done. And I want to know why if it isn't done. You know, management, like everything else, like where's the management? So, I think and that's as you an turn essential... around and
1: you say that some of it's a personnel issue. I look at the the folks who uh, are at the front door for our greeters and some of the uh, people at the desk, and they're not welcoming. They're they're there because we need someone to do this. And in the business world, you put your best people in the to meet the the public. But that we just need a pulse here, and I, I just see people in my parish. All our doors are locked. We have internal doors within the framework, and they're all locked because the parish staff is afraid that somebody will come in and accost them. So we're in a lockdown mode. We're like back in the prison world.
0: And you're in the inner city, right, Tom? I mean, you're in the no. neighborhood. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all.
1: It's not just that there's this mindset by people who are inside that we're afraid because of whatever reason, and it's, it goes unchallenged. So in order to get into the parish, you have to ring the buzzer on the outside. It's it's very hard.
4: Well, One of the things that took place at Vatican II, which we're still experiencing today, and I think you guys are touching on this, I I once interviewed a bishop shortly before he passed away. He was one of the last remaining U.S. bishops who attended all four sessions of the council as a bishop. I believe now they're all passed away. And at at the time, he was one of two or three guys left. And we recorded for about eight hours. We recorded these days of interviews that I did with him about the council marvelous stuff. And I asked him toward the end of the interviews, were there areas that he felt the council did not address sufficiently or at all that he wishes in hindsight they had? And one of the things that reduced me to tears, because when this bishop, who is now well into his 80s, he was assigned to this particular diocese when he was still in his 30s. And he would talk about, I remember when I was at college seminary in his diocese. I was for a different diocese, but the seminary was in his. And he would never stop talking about Vatican. We just came back to the third session, and this is what we did. It was marvelous stuff. Then when I went back after the Navy and I encountered him again, he never talked about it. And so I asked, him, what is it? What is it that you've quit talking about? It? And he said, because my heart was broke. I said, "How was your heart broken?" And he said, "Because one of the things we never imagined at the council was that the floor would fall out of the numbers of priests." He said, "We never anticipated the crisis in the priesthood." And he said, "Bill, over the years, I've become so convicted that I thought maybe we just screwed the whole thing." And he said, "Why were priests leaving? Was there some?" And he said, "Then it dawned on." He said, we have documents on the layer. We wrote we even renewed the diaconate as a permanent order. He said, we talked about us as bishops. And he said, yes, we had a document on priestly formation, but it wasn't one of our most significant documents. And we should have devoted more time to talking about the priesthood. So we saw changes coming with the way we did our ministry as bishops. We saw changes coming. With the way deacons might be used in the life of the church. And remember, if I could throw this in, the debate on the diaconate took place literally in the middle of the council's debate on bishops. They saw us from the beginning as being the bishop's core team. He said, and we wrote about the later. He said, what we failed to see was that if you made changes to all of these other things, the ripple effect that would have on priesthood. He said, did we let our priests down at And then I got thinking about my own experience as a college seminary coming home. And we had the 60-year-old pastor who was trying to manage a huge parish, a couple of associate priests and an order of nuns in the school and all the rest of it. He was too busy to implement the council. For him, for a lot of these guys, the council was just, oh, the bishop went away for a few months. Now he's come back and we're getting these notices from the chancery saying, starting Sunday, do this. They weren't prepared. And, And I guess one of my concerns for the synod, it's great to have this conversation. It'll be great to see what comes out. But now how will we implement things? And will we get that kind of ongoing conversation so that the priests, the deacons, the lay people, the religious, all feel like they have a stake? And
0: what's that? Let me ask you a quick question, Bill. Back to what you just said, because you are better traveled. You've been in more dioceses, and you've been, you've been in the room where it happens. Unlike any of us, to your knowledge, you just said at Vatican II, the bishops saw the deacons as their core team, and I understand that theology. And you recap that very nicely in your book. Is there a single place, fifty years out of the diaconate, a single diocese, to your knowledge? Where that is true where the bishop gets together with his deacons where they, yes. they know what the pastoral plan there are places yes. where is that you, can you give me a name because i'm gonna um, move there i'm gonna put my papers in
4: <laughs> i would rather not use names and i will unfortunately have to say that i could name a couple of names but that was bishop dependent and now that the bishop has moved on and another bishop has come in it might be the same but i have and, seen a number of places Including a couple of smaller dioceses, where the numbers of deacons were maybe in the maybe 40, 50 guys over time. There was one archdiocese where, just as as a, almost a minor consideration, but it's significant given our age on liturgy, where the archbishop said, I will not do this. And my auxiliary, none of my auxiliary bishops will do this. None of us will offer mass without the assistance of at least two deacons. And he went so far as to say that when he showed it was going to be the bishop's responsibility to hand carry the vestments that that were going to be used by the two deacons and the bishop presider at a mass. So you you would get a call from the liturgy office saying, hey, Deacon Bill, could you cover a confirmation mass at Christ the King tonight? It's at seven o'clock. Be it directly at six thirty. Okay, so at six thirty you're sitting there and you're talking with folks in the rectory, and door opens and comes the bishop with three vestment sets because he's not going to say mass without two deacons. So there's things like that. There was another archbishop who had an open door policy, literally twice a week. One day, let's let's put this day. I I don't remember exactly, but let's say it's Monday would be, he would have no appointments on Monday, no external appointments, no meetings or nothing, and the entire day was open for any priest who wanted to walk in and sit down and chat. And another day of the week was set up that way for his deacons. Any deacon from around the diocese could come in at any time, drop in, sit in a chair, talk to the archbishop. So yeah, there are examples around. I wish it weren't as uneven, but there are examples of uh, one diocese I was in where the bishop had been called away. He was spending the day of a convocation with his deacons and their wives, and he got called away early on. In the and he came back at the end of the day, and he looked off. He looked terrible. And he'd had a rough day. And at the end of it, he got all the deacons were standing around him with their wives, And the bishop literally was standing in the middle of it. And he made some general comments to them as a community. I was on the outside of it because I would just been one of the presenters. But it was remarkable to watch this. And I can't remember what the event was that had happened today that, that really hammered the bishop. And he turned to them and he said, now, if you don't mind, I need to get very serious. He said, when I ordained you men, for service to this diocese, I ordained you to share on your heart the burdens that are on my heart and carry the people of God. He said, So I want to take a few minutes right now and share what's on my heart so it can be on yours. It was such a powerful, powerful sense of that. And you could feel the love and affection that the diaconic community had with their bishop. And he opened himself up. So, yes, it happens. It's just, it's on
0: the... Delighted to know it's actually happened somewhere, because this is news to me. I think that's great. That's very edifying. In in those instances where you've seen it happen, Bill, did you get a
2: sense of how the parishes then... Did that filter down into the parishes? Was there less clericalism, say? Was was there um, a greater welcoming feeling in each parish? Did you have the opportunity, in other words, to see if that got translated?
4: I wish it had been more direct. Like, okay, I want to see how this lives out in a parish. I, I didn't see a lot of people. Although I have to admit that the priests that I have encountered over the years who have been responsible for priest convocations that want to talk about the act, they're involved with the diaconate in some concept, are very pro-deacon. And have the same sense that their bishop has. Now, does that translate to every parish? No. But I don't have a scientific response. Typically, if the bishop has a good sense about it, at least I think the majority of
3: his presbyter knows how their bishop is, whether they agree with him or not.
2: That's fair enough. Yeah.
3: Where do you see the diaconate going in the years ahead? I'm very concerned by the numbers. And in fact, I, I started
4: writing about the aging of the diaconate as far back as, I think, 2005 or six. I mentioned. And now it's even worse. I always try to remind people of a couple of things. One is, at the Second Vatican Council, the original proposals to renew the deaconate said that married men could be ordained deacons uh, at the age of 45. I'm sorry, at the age of 40. But when that was presented to the world's bishops, the world's bishops said, "No, that's too old," and they lowered the age to thirty-five. Unmarried guys, twenty-five. Now, in our country, early on, the bishops decided they were just going to use the same age for everybody, and so it's thirty-five whether you're single or uh, or married. So that's one thing to take away. But the idea that the vision. The bishops of Vatican II had about deacons was that we were still young guys, still engaged in the world, in a workplace and raising families, not retired guys that had more discretionary time now. And so right now it's something, I think it's under 1% of our deacons in the United States are under the age of 40, not 35, 40. And so that, that is a great concern is the aging of diaconate. We have to somehow capture the imagination that diaconate is not an old guy thing. When I would go to Europe and represent our diaconate at international gatherings, I would take this grief every time. You Americans are turning us into a retiree school. Mm-hmm. And there's truth to that. And, yeah, so, and
0: specifically, in my experience, it was celibates who ran the program who were telling the married guys, "Oh, you got young kids; you can't do this."
4: That's exactly right. That's it their... was
0: not the deacons. It was not people didn't come forward. They were being turned away, discouraged every step from what I, my limited experience granted. But in several dioceses, it was like, "No, we want the older guys." You, this is going to put a strain on your marriage. It's like so is two jobs, so is a sick kid, or they did stuff like that. Well, you have a kid who has a, a disability, so you know this. You get enough to do, and it's like, well. I could have a child who develops a, a problem the day after a am
4: I remember one in one particular instance, and this is not alone, in one particular instance where the bishop set a policy that he wouldn't even accept applications from anyone who had a child under 18 still at home, which guaranteed you're going to have an older jacob. But I have to say, yes, a lot of this comes from the top, putting those kind of it, it's all done from a desire to protect the family. But they don't always ask us, what's the best way to protect them right. But I have to say, we deacons have to take on some of this, too. Because what I used to hear a lot at the bishop's conference, and I still hear from, from certain guys, is that it was the parish deacon who said exactly the same thing. Oh, you know what? Formation now is five years long. You got young kids at home. You just got a promotion at work. You're not going to be able to have. If I were in there now, I'd never be able to make it. And you, no, you need to wait, hold off until the next cold work or something. So a lot of times we're doing it to ourselves. So you, and again, that's something we need to be cautious. of. A lot of times our brothers, and again, when we desire to be helped minimize what's the word looking. Not exaggerate, but build up the problem that you're going to gonna. You're gonna have. When I went through a formation, I was still active duty in the Navy. My wife and I, Diane and I still had a lot more of our kids at home. They had decided to work on a in at Catholic U while going through a formation. How crazy am I? And it turned out to be probably the best three years of our lives. Because, again, to circle back to where we started, Apparently this is what the Holy Spirit wanted for us. It was funny when I set this up. We had moved to DC, I transferred to DC. I thought it might be my last assignment in the Navy, and I wanted to be able to teach college when done. So I thought, well, I'm gonna check out a PhD program here at Catholic U. But I'm also interested in the diaconate. So I applied for both. And my prayer was, God, pick one. Tell me which way you want me to go. You want me to go the pastoral route? You want me to go the academic route? Pick one. I got acceptance letters on the same day. One being accepted into the graduate program at Chapel Q and being accepted to Deep Ellum. god God's.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, and they say God doesn't think things That's are
4: funny. Right. <laughs> so, so anyway, but somehow we have to euthanize the diac. We've got to help people understand. It. And again, where are we church? We're not just church when we're in the, in the building, when we're wearing our vestments. That, that's part of it. We're being deacon when we're raising our kids, struggling with something at work or whatever. That's where, that's the extension. That's what John Paul II used to talk about, the vision they had for the diaconate at the council, was that it would yeah. be the presence of the church's ministers And all these other environments where the church had
0: not. Oh, yeah. And I know, I'll tell you a story from Connecticut. There were so many, uh, uh, Hartford, Connecticut is the insurance capital of the world. If you have an insurance bill, you're probably mailing it to Hartford, if you look at it, to one of the companies. And they had so many deacons working in those complexes. It was a joke. You couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting a deacon at Travelers or Aetna or any of these other companies. And they would be working it. These guys were doing programs, lunch hour, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and lunch. You know what I mean? Like, they were doing the the liturgy of the hours with people in a conference room before and after work. was, you can't buy that kind of access to people. And there was people coming in to talk to Mike and saying, hey, Mike, can I talk to you for a minute? And they shut the door and bare their souls, because they know Mike's a deacon, and it's the Holy Spirit. You say, no worker priests? He says, well, Okay. There you I go. i yeah. got to wait around this. So there's great success in the diaconate that, that, that you people don't see and they don't know about, and deacons, to a certain extent, are humble, I think, because they don't talk about it. They don't promote. We're invisible unless we're up uh, in the sanctuary there in our vestments. And uh, they generally, whatever their faults are, they're generally, in, uh, as a group, humble people. We're doing a lot of stuff, They're going to prison and not talking about it, and, and, they, and maybe they should be talking about well, it a little more. Well, and that
4: raises more. the point. Remember, if we're part of a sacramental life like this, it's an outward sign. So I'm not saying deacons should take out ads and papers to talk great right but at the same time, connecting those things as a public witness is important. So, yeah, so I think in terms of deacadent, one is we need to address this age, aging problem. I think we're missing. Uh, the second thing is, I think in, as a deacon, with fifty plus years now of experience, I think we have at the point of maybe leaving our adolescence behind. Most of us have figured out how this works, and we are there as opposed to the first few years of the renewal back in the late sixties and early seventies, where nobody quite knew what to do. I think we're at that point now, and and, and by maturing. As an order, I think we start doing more what you're saying. What are we doing? And and why aren't we more mobile? Why, okay, maybe I get involved in jail and prison ministry for a while, in time to train up some lay folks to do it as well. And once they're trained up and going, then I launch into something else. We have to follow the me as opposed to saying, this is my job. This is mine. Right.
0: But yeah, I'm the baptism deacon. I'm yeah, the yeah. yeah. But here's the problem, Bill, where I see a lot of these coming from the other end is from formation. You hear people criticizing deacons. And I say, well, you selected them and then you formed them. And now you blame them because this is what you formed them to do. Why aren't we forming people to do what you just said? A lot of deacons would honestly, they'll take a job, they'll learn to do this or do that. Not all of them, but a lot of them, though, don't have the ability to say, I'm going to go start this project, work it from the ground up, bring in people, train it, make it go. And they're not, there's no formation for that. There's no testing. There's no formation. And so if you want that, you need to select those people and then you need to form them so that they go out thinking, well, this is my job, not to be father's gopher or a substitute priest or a jumped-up altar boy. So a lot of this I take back to formation, and people had their agendas.
4: I I once went to a National Association of Deacon Directors meeting as a speaker. Well, actually, I was at the bishops' Conference, so I went to give an update to the directors. And I had just come back from Europe from a, a gathering, an international gathering of deacons, and I had stayed with a German deacon and his family, and we got talking one night about their formation, and it was very interesting. First of all, in Germany, I don't know if it's still the same way. But this was under then Bishop Walter Casper. but in Germany, anybody who wanted to be any kind of parochial minister, what we would call a DRE or a pastor associate or maybe a deacon, had to go through a two-year theology curriculum. This is before you become a candidate for anything. And you might be a truck driver, but you can take this two-year course, a correspondence, if necessary. So you take that, that's sort of year to get you in the door. So then you go in and you talk to somebody and you say, I think maybe I'm being called to be a deacon. Well, the first year of formation, they refer to it as the deacon year. The second year is called the homiletic year. And the third year is called the sacramental year. And I forget what they call the fourth year now. But that first year was the deacon year. And here's what they had to do. They had to go back to their hometown, not their home parish, their hometown. They had to identify a need that wasn't being met. And they had to develop something to meet it. And so I turned to my friend and I said, was this like a hypothetical thing? Would you write this up like a D-Min thesis or something or what? Oh, no. He said, let me give you the, let me show you what I did. And so he grabbed his hat. We went walking down the street. And he stands, it's a Sunday afternoon. So we're standing in front of this flat blue building, looks like a school. He said, he stands in front of me. He said, this is my school. And I said, Oh, well, you were a tax guy or sir, an accountant or something. What, how are you involved in education? What's this? He goes, no. But he said, my first year in formation, I came back to my town. And discovered there was no early childhood education or daycare for kids of single parents. He said, So I started. I said, What do you mean you started? He said, Well, he said, I looked around, and this person over here knew everything there was about how to acquire property. And this person over here knew everything about the insurances. And this person over here knew everything there was about how to get certified through the country, through the national standards, and all this stuff. So he had like 10 people that he identified, that he did it. And there was no going back to the diocese and saying, may I do this? They just did it. It didn't necessarily involve the pastor or the parish unless they wanted to get involved. This was a community-based thing, but it did a number of things. First of all, it told the bishop, I've got somebody with the deacons on. I've got somebody who can see the need and has the skills to put together a team to meet them. That's what they do. And I introduced them to our deacon directors. Half of them came up to me afterwards and said, if I tried to introduce this in my diocese, they'd kill me. And the other half were interesting, trying to find ways of how can we concretize some of this diary information.
3: Bill, if you had a family member who told you that they were having trouble believing in God, that they were having trouble with their faith, what would you say to them? Oh, you mean like the ones we have? <laughs> 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 well, first of
4: all, I, I just keep loving them. i That's a great question. I i think part of it is, can I be humble with my own family? What, why is it that you're in control? How can I help? Them? I'm not going to try to give answers. But what's happened to bring you to this? I think that's where I would begin by focusing, especially if it was a person who had been in the faith and was now walking away from it, and in some cases running. But I think that's where I'd want to start, is what's happening.
3: What do you say to the person at the threshold of the church, that maybe they're having whatever concerns they have and they're thinking about leaving, or maybe they're somebody who's curious and is considering coming in? What would you say to them?
4: Be ready for the ride of your life, coming in. I Remind them that we believe in God, and one thing we know about God is we're not God. And a humanness of the church, don't let our flawed humanity dissuade you or, or knock you off course from your relationship with God. I guess that would be... I, To me, that's what, over the years, has been so remarkable has been the humanness of the church. Even something like a council; those were twenty six hundred average guys who became bishops and were trying to find practical solutions for pastoral problems. They weren't all a bunch of educator again. This wasn't a a debating society. These were a bunch of pastors, and I think we need to remind people that we're a very human church with a divine head. Christ. And be prepared. And I remind Deacon Candidates of that as well. You're going to experience more about the human side of the church than you ever wanted to know. That can't knock you off course with your relationship with them. Don't.
3: Leave. Well, this has been just a delightful conversation, Bill. Thank you so much. I think when God called you to both pursue that doctorate and to pursue the diaconate, he was asking a lot of you and you have been delivering so thank you so much for the conversation thank, today thank you bill for all that you do and thanks all it was a great yeah. uh, had a thanks, great thanks bill thank, thank you guys yeah, we all sure. want to be
0: like you when we grow up <laughs> yes <laughs> if that ever happens
4: <laughs> thanks guys it means a lot to be. now you're the
0: best thank you yeah. thank you you make us look good thank you Special thanks to El Jefe, Paul Snatchko, and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacons Pod is powered by the Paulist Fathers and is a ministry of the Paulist Affiliate Deacons. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T.org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.